If you would, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 29. This morning uh, we'll be uh, picking up in Genesis 29 verse 31. And then uh, we'll be uh, first looking uh, from Genesis 29 31 down to chapter 30 verse 24. And then we'll pick up uh, with the remainder of chapter 30 here uh, at a later portion in the sermon. Um, but as we, as we look to, uh, to this text here, this text running from Genesis 29, 31 down through 30, verse 24, we're really just going to have one main point as we look at this chunk of text, and that is a constellation of sins. A constellation of sins. And then as we look to the, the second part of chapter 30, the, the main point there will be the blessing of God. Constellation of sins and the blessing of God. So let's, let's pick up reading Genesis 29, verse 31. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. He has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her, that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, How fortunate! So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, How happy I am, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Now in the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field, and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. 
So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. Now, in these verses that we have just read, we see the history of the births of 11 out of the 12 sons of Jacob. All of the sons except for Benjamin were born during this span of time in which Jacob was still in the east in the vicinity of Haran working for his father-in-law Laban. We also see the birth of his daughter Dinah in verse 21. And so in that way, this account does show us the way in which God was fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here we see the descendants of Abraham multiplying, multiplying quite a bit, multiplying so as to eventually become as numerous as the stars of the sky, as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, the birth of any child is a blessing, as Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 expresses it. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. And if the birth of any child is a blessing, as Psalm 127 expresses it, how much more then the birth of those to whom the promise is given, that through them all nations would be blessed. Truly, this is a blessing. But despite the fact that the birth of children, and particularly the birth of these children, is a blessing, this doesn't mean that all is well with respect to the circumstances and the means that are employed to that end, the means and circumstances by which these children were born. It's quite messy, to put it mildly. How so? How was it messy? Well, first, for starters, there's the problem of polygamy. We saw last week how Jacob had taken both Leah and Rachel to be his wife. And if that were not enough, here we see that he gains two more. Bilhah, the maid of Rachel, in verse 4. Zilpah, the maid of Leah, in verse 9. And though we don't know much about the perspectives of Bilhah and Zilpah in regard to these things, we do see the ugly rivalry between the sisters, between Leah and Rachel. There was Leah, who was unloved, and yet bore children, hoping that by bearing children she could win Jacob's love and secure his affection to her. And there was Rachel, who was loved, and yet was barren for a time, and could not stand it that her sister was bearing children. And Leah's, or excuse me, Rachel's outlook is described in chapter 30, verse 1, as jealousy. She became jealous of her sister. And this is, of course, what leads Rachel to give Bilhah to Jacob as a wife so that, in a way, she could count those children as her own since it was her maid who would bear them. And when Bilhah bore her second son, Naphtali, Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I've wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. And then when Leah stops bearing, she does the same thing with Zilpah. 
And then there's that incident described in verses 14 through 16 where a young Reuben, probably somewhere between four and six years old at this point, goes out into the field of the wheat harvest, finds some mandrakes, and gives them to his mother Leah. Mandrakes were a plant that were regarded as an aphrodisiac and were thought to assist in conception. Song of Solomon 7.13 speaks of the fragrance of mandrakes. Leah had them. Rachel wanted them. She wanted them so much and thought that they would be so advantageous to her that she was willing to give Jacob to Leah for the night in order that she might have them. And when Leah speaks to Jacob about this matter, she speaks to the situation by saying that she had hired him. Now this, this is a mess. It's no wonder that the Mosaic Law would later contain that statute of Leviticus 18.18, 18. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Now the Old Testament law tolerated and regulated polygamy, though marriage was not that way from the beginning. The Lord only made one wife for Adam. Her name was Eve. And the Old Testament law also in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, envisions some of the the messiness that can come from polygamy, namely a loved wife and an unloved wife. And so the law says this, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he will take what he has to give to his sons, he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and to him belongs the right of the firstborn. And so the law clearly envisions the, the messiness of the situation of polygamy. And so there's that problem here. There's a loved wife and an unloved wife. There is the issue of jealousy and rivalry between the sisters. We read that text from James chapter 3 this morning that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And so Rachel was jealous, or the King James translated it by saying that Rachel envied her sister. Now envy has been described as grieving at the good of another. It's grieving at the good that they have when you don't have it. And then this, the way this works then is that it eats away at us on the inside, causing resentment, causing bitterness, and then sometimes, of course, the jealousy and the envy works its way out into the surface. The resentment and the bitterness boils over. The grieving that you're doing on account of the good that someone else has and the good that you don't have but what you want, it becomes evident. Now... We see this clearly in, in children, don't we? Where it takes the, the form of pouting, whining, fighting, all these kinds of things. And unfortunately, sometimes can't jealousy and envy take that form in grown-ups as well. Sometimes jealousy or envy can show itself in how we treat that other person as we desperately pursue the good things that they have that we long for. Again, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
In other words, the jealousy and the selfish ambition serve as, as catalysts for the disorder and for the coming of these other evil things. It paves the way for evil deeds because it makes us want to exalt ourselves and pursue what we want no matter who we have to step on or who we have to step over in order to get it. No matter if we have to bring about the downfall of the other person to get what we want. Where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, watch out. There's going to be trouble taking the form of disorder and every evil practice. And though we see that on display right here in the text, Rachel is jealous of her sister on account of the children that Leah has, and she does not, and so she whines to Jacob a little bit and cries out in desperation. She says, give me children or I die. Now, this kind of behavior is sinful, and Rachel's attitude is rightly reproved by Jacob, who says, am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It is the Lord who opens and closes the womb, and Jacob rightly recognizes that and recognizes that he is not in the place of God. He's not in control of these things. And therefore, Jacob's words there point us in the right direction when we find ourselves jealous or at least tempted to be jealous. When we find ourselves in that situation, jealous or tempted to be jealous, we need to be looking to the Lord. We need to learn to trust Him in regard to what He has withheld from us and trust Him with regard to what He has chosen to give to others. And we must not only learn to trust Him in regard to giving and withholding as He pleases, we must also learn to rejoice and to praise Him in those things. We're commanded in Romans 12:15 that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. As challenging as this may be, this means rejoicing and praising God when your friends are getting engaged and getting married and you're still single. It means rejoicing and praising God when other couples are having children while you and your spouse are still childless. It means rejoicing with others and praising God when someone else gets the promotion and you've been trying to get a promotion or a better job for years and it just hasn't happened. It means rejoicing and praising God when you see blessings in someone else's life that you long to experience but haven't experienced. And I think we've all been there in some form or fashion. We've all seen someone else have the blessings that we ourselves wanted and, and didn't have. And as Christians, we must not be grieved at the good things which others experience, which we ourselves do not. And we must not become resentful and bitter about what they have and we don't. We need to be directed, as Jacob directed Leah, back to the Lord. We need to remember that the Lord knows what we need better than we know what we need. We think we know, but we really don't. One minister from olden times put it this way. He said, There's no particular person that truly loves and honors God, but may take notice in his own private affairs that all the losses, crosses, and disappointments that he ever suffered, all the distresses and afflictions of any sort that the devil or man have brought upon him, have, by the secret working of God, contributed something either to his temporal or spiritual good or welfare. No man can believe in God and yet be troubled at the same time for the things that God does, 
for our very believing that God does it and that he does it for our good should fill our hearts with so much joy and comfort that there will be no room for grief or trouble there. We need to remember that it's the Lord who brings, it's the Lord who gives, it's the Lord who takes away. Our Lord Jesus said in John 14:1, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And now while we are considering Rachel's childlessness and Jacob's response, we would probably do well to think at least briefly on this subject of childlessness human desire for children and the sovereignty of God in this regard. Now, I think we can all acknowledge that this is a a very tender and delicate subject, and so obviously we need to to be careful here. We all understand that the barrenness, childlessness, can be a very heavy burden and cross for married couples who have desired children, but have been providentially hindered from having children. So obviously this can be a very tender subject. So we should understand that ultimately it's, it's the Lord who, who opens and closes the womb. And while there are some ways in which medical advances or fertility treatments may be of help, we need to obviously understand that the Lord makes use of means. But at the end of the day, all of these things are in the Lord's hands. And Christians need to think deeply and carefully before uh, employing any and every reproductive possibility that is potentially available. It's certainly beyond our scope this morning to speak in detail of these matters, but suffice it to say there are some reproductive technologies that are beyond the pale for us as Christians. The availability of technology in this regard does not mean that it is permissible to use it. And so we need to be thoughtful and careful if we're in a position where we're considering these things. Ultimately, we have to trust the Lord for what he gives us, whether in regard to, to children or spouse or job or earthly prosperity or anything else. And likewise, we must not grieve at the good which others have received if we have not received it. We would do well to remember and apply to ourselves the words of Psalm 145, verse 9, that the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all of his works. Surely that applies to me, and surely that applies to, to everyone who is here. And we would do well to, to think on that truth, that the Lord is good to all and that his mercies are over all his works, and inquire how it is true for us when circumstances seem to arise that on the surface are stacked against it. Because all of us can imagine circumstances or have experienced circumstances in which we would say, well... This doesn't seem like the Lord is good to me. It doesn't seem like his mercies are over me because of whatever it is that I'm going through right now. We need to to stop. We need to think. We need to reflect that it's true, objectively true, that the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And we need to reflect on that and see how that truth actually applies to us. How is the Lord good to us? How is his mercies uh, overshadowing us? Now, we also ought to notice here in this constellation of sins, the, the snowball effect of sin, right? That sin leads to more sin. And the further in one goes, the more one gets entangled in the web that he or she has woven. And I think, I think we see that here in this text. We saw last week how Leah impersonated Rachel on what should have been Rachel's wedding night. And now she has a husband Leah has a husband by whom she is unloved. 
Jacob married two sisters, and now his household is full of jealousy and rivalry, and he himself is getting bartered for by his wives. To gratify Rachel's desire for children, Jacob goes along with her plan of taking Bilhah so that Bilhah's children would be reckoned to Rachel. And then when Leah sees that she's not having children, she does the same thing with Zilpah. And so Jacob cannot with any consistency refuse Leah's offer of Zilpah because he's already taken a maid from his other wives. And at the end of the day, Jacob has not one, not two, not three, but four wives. You see how this kind of thing works, that one sin logically paves the way for another, and the web that gets woven becomes more intricate and more entangling all of the time. Haven't you seen that happen, either in your own life or in the life of someone whom you know, maybe the life of someone whom you've read about in the news or in history? Back in the 1990s, there was a a young pastor in southeast Indiana who exemplified some of this very thing. It would be a bit too much to say that that I knew him personally, but I certainly knew of him and had certainly been around him uh, when I was a boy at the local uh, Baptist youth camp. And anyways, this man became the pastor of a church, and this church had experienced some growth and were kind of in a place where they didn't know if they should build on to their current building and this downtown region where the church was or if they should kind of move out to the kind of to the edge of town and build a completely new building and there had been a number of church votes over over the period of two years where uh, they'd been close to apparently moving but had never gotten enough votes to do it and so this pastor kind of felt discouraged about the deadlock and so one morning the pastor lit a candle on a stack of papers walked out of his office, left the church building, and drove away to go to a meeting. And surprise, surprise, fire started, and uh, they, the church burned. I don't know if it burned completely or just a, a large section of it. And the, the pastor repeatedly denied that he was involved in setting the fire, but uh, the monkey wrench came when he came to learn that due to the fact that arson had ravaged so many African-American churches in the South that now it became standard process in church fires for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, to get involved in these kind of investigations. And so, in other words, he wasn't only up against local, rural, southeast Indiana investigators. He's up against federal professionals who might know a thing or two more about investigating church fires. And... He became scared that they were going to find out the truth, and after leaving some notes in which he confessed his guilt, he took his life. Sin leads to more sin. The web gets more and more entangling, and the wages of sin is death. Now, the webs which we as sinners weave don't always lead in that exact way, but once we become involved in sin, we've got two choices. It boils down to two. We can either keep going, in which case we get more and more entangled and entrapped by our wickedness, or we can repent and turn to the Lord. And this is the call of the gospel. It's noteworthy that in Mark chapter 1, the first words that we find coming out of Jesus' mouth are his proclamation of the gospel of God, where he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the call of Jesus to every one of us, to repent and believe, to 
Repent means to, to turn away from our sins, to acknowledge and confess them from, for what they are, and to turn away from them, to turn away from walking in those things which are offensive to God and lead to judgment, and to turn to walking in the paths of obedience to the Lord. Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to believe the gospel, which is to believe in Him, that He is the Son of God, that He became a man in order to redeem us from our sins by His death on the cross. The call of Jesus is to trust in Him, to turn from our sins and to, to follow Him. And if you have more questions about what that means to repent, to turn from sin, to follow after Jesus, to trust in Him, you can talk to me or talk to another Christian here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to repent and to believe in Jesus. And one more item that we ought to note here in this section of the text before we move on is what we might call the, the mixed impressions that we see here, uh, particularly from, from Leah and Rachel. The, the mixed impressions or the the interpretations of God's providence that they give. As these different circumstances are related uh, to us by Moses, Leah and Rachel make some different statements as to how they interpret God's providence toward them in the births of their children. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. And so, for instance, at the birth of Reuben in chapter 29, verse 32, Leah said, because the Lord has seen my affliction. Namely, seeing that she's the unloved wife. And then uh, at the birth of Simeon, chapter 29, verse 33, she says, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And if we look at the inspired words of Moses here in the text, we see that this is indeed the case, right? That Leah was correct in her apprehension of these events. Verse 31, now, the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. The Lord had seen her affliction. The Lord had saw that she was unloved, and therefore the Lord gave her these sons. She rightly understood the reason why. However, we also see some later interpretations of providence that are much more open to question or just plain wrong. And so when Bilhah bears her first son, Rachel names him Dan, saying, God has vindicated me. In other words, this is a sign that God has vindicated me. And then when Naphtali is born, chapter 30, verse 8, she says, With mighty wrestling, I've wrestled with my sister and have indeed prevailed. Now Moses doesn't give us any inspired commentary, either validating or invalidating what Rachel says there, but I am inclined to be a bit skeptical of the reasons that she gives. It's not clear to me at all that God was vindicating her when Bilhah gave birth to Dan or that she had indeed prevailed over Leah when Naphtali was born. Likewise, I'm also skeptical of Leah's interpretation of providence in chapter 30, verse 18, where she says that the birth of Issachar, uh, says that the birth of Issachar was because God was giving her wages because she had given Zilpah to Jacob. As far as I can tell, that's, that's what they call a non sequitur. Right? It does not follow. It does not follow at all that because Leah conceived and gave birth to Issachar, that that had anything to do with her having given Zilpah to Jacob. The point is that uh, we sometimes see people putting a correct construction upon God's dealing with them, and sometimes not. 
And I would suggest that we ourselves would do well to slow down and think biblically and be cautious before we draw a direct line from the events that happen in our lives to what God's intentions are with respect to that providence in our lives. It might be hidden from our view more than we think it is. And I think Jeremiah chapter 24 is a, is a great chapter that uh, makes the point abundantly clear. And what we're told in Jeremiah 24 is that in the aftermath of a, of a wave of exiles being taken away from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeremiah sees, these, sees a vision of these two baskets. And there's one basket full of, of rotten figs, basically, one basket that's full of good figs. And the word of the Lord to Jeremiah is that those who were taken into exile are actually the good figs and that those who are left are the bad figs. They are the ones who would be destroyed. But if you'd been living those events in real time, that's probably the opposite of what everyone would have thought. They would have pitied those taken into exile. They would have thought, oh, those, those poor people taken far from their homeland, everything else, surely God is going to curse them. They're going to die in a foreign land. The Lord says, no, my hand is on them for good and for blessing. It was those who were left behind who were going to be judged. God's providential dealings with his people and with his enemies as well is often very mysterious and very difficult to interpret as the events are unfolding. Trying to discern the Lord's precise reason for the whys in our lives is often more than we can do. Sometimes we might be able to see it with reasonable clarity, many times not. And that's okay. We don't, we don't have to. But in whatever comes our way, let us follow that command given to us in James chapter 1 to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you will be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And when the Lord gives us reason to be cheerful, let's sing praise as we find in James 5.13. And... Let's rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all things, as we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now let's look ahead to the remainder of, of chapter 30. We'll pick up reading in verse 25 as we come to our second point, which is the blessing of God. Now it came about when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered you. But Laban said to him, If now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, Name your wages, and I will give it. But he said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? So he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there, every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later 
when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be according to your word. So he removed on that day the striped and the spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats and every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep and gave them into the care of his sons. And he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white strips in them, exposing the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods and the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black of the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, whenever the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters and so, they might, uh, so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, we see in this second half of chapter 30 that Jacob grew prosperous in regard to earthly wealth. The events of verse 35 and following seemed to pertain to the time after Jacob had finished working his 14 years for Leah and Rachel. So after the first seven years, he uh, marries the two women and then has to serve another seven years for Rachel. And it seems that this conversation that takes place here between Laban and Jacob takes place there at the end of those 14 years, that now his term of service to Laban has expired. He's served his 14 years. Now he's anxious to provide for his own household. But... Laban is not anxious to lose the service of Jacob. He knows that Jacob's been a good worker, that the flocks have fared well under him. He claimed in verse 27 to have learned by divination that the Lord had blessed him on account of Jacob. And Jacob himself expressed it in verse 30 by saying, You had little before I came, and it has increased to a multitude, and the Lord blessed you wherever I turned. And so Laban wants the advantage of having Jacob around to take care of his livestock and Jacob wants to provide for his own family. And so they strike a deal. The deal is that Laban's flock is to get purged of all the speckled and spotted sheep, as well as the, uh, the black ones. Every speckled and spotted goat was to be taken away. And then from that point on, whatever in Laban's flock was born that was speckled or spotted or black among the lambs would be reckoned as belonging to Jacob. Laban agrees to the terms because he thinks that he will be the winner Jacob will be the loser in regard to this agreement. The normal way that these things would work out is that it would not be common for, for females of a single color to bear offspring that were speckled and spotted. In verses 35 and 36, we see Laban going through the flock, pulling out all of the speckled and spotted and sending them in the care of his sons, the care of Laban's sons, uh, some distance of three journeys, uh, th of a three days journey away to prevent any further connection between the speckled livestock and those of a single color. 
But then in verse 37 and following, we see that Jacob seeks to, uh, as it were, put his thumb on the scales, right? He seeks to influence the color of the offspring born to the flocks uh, by a mechanism known as a maternal impression process. And so it was uh, widely believed in the, in the ancient world and even into the early modern period. I don't know when exactly uh, folks stopped thinking this, but this was pretty widely held that the characteristics of offspring could be influenced as a result of a vivid sight or image that was presented to the mother either during the time of conception or pregnancy. This was, this was widely held. And Jacob seeks to employ that strategy here so as to get speckled and spotted livestock for himself. And at the same time, he's also selective in the methodology that he employs, right? He uh, applies this selectively so that he gets the stronger ones and so that the weaker ones go to Laban. And Jacob obtained what he was after, right? Verse 39, the flocks mated by the rods... And the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted. Verses 42 and 43. The feebler were Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks. Now, we need to be clear here that correlation is not the same as causation. Right? The scripture is clear that there was correlation here. Jacob was doing this, and... This was the result. But the scripture does not say that this maternal impression process was the effectual and scientific cause by which these sheep and goats were born with these characteristics. You see the difference. That correlation is not the same as causation. What we do see here, though, is the Lord being true to his promises, watching out for his own. He had promised Jacob back in chapter 28, verse 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And here we see the Lord working through these circumstances to be with Jacob, to keep him, to bless him, despite the treatment that he was receiving from his father-in-law. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll consider this a little bit more next week in, in chapter 31, where uh, where Jacob kind of recounts uh, to his wives the way in which Laban had, had treated him and the way in which the Lord said to him that I've seen all that, that Laban is doing to you. And so Laban was, was not just in his dealings with Jacob, but the Lord nevertheless was, was with Jacob and was blessing him. And indeed, isn't this what we see all throughout this entire text that we have considered? Despite the polygamy, despite the jealousy and the rivalry, despite the mixed impressions of God's providence, despite the greed of Laban and his desire to take advantage of Jacob and so on. With all of that, through all of that, the Lord was being faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was being faithful to his promise to Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that should be comforting and helpful to us upon reflection, that the Lord is good and faithful Despite the messes that we make along the way, those messes are not to be excused and they bring greater hardship and difficulty into our lives than we would have had to deal with otherwise. But the messes that we make do not thwart the Lord's will of decree. The Lord has remained faithful and he will remain faithful. He continues that faithfulness from day to day. And just to draw out that point clearly, look up to, to chapter 29 verse 35 again. 
There we see Leah conceiving and giving birth to Judah. This is Leah, the unloved wife. Leah who impersonated Rachel on Rachel's wedding night. And yet it is she who becomes the mother of Judah. And thus is an ancestor according to the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now sometimes uh, people will look at Matthew chapter 1 and will look at uh, the, the women in the, the lineage of Christ and they'll talk about some of these women with some kind of questionable paths like, uh, like Ruth and Rahab and so on. And I think we ought to add Leah to that list, right? Is she not one more example of how the Lord uses the weak of this world to shame the strong, how, she uses, how, how the Lord uses the despised and the things that are not of this world to shame the things that are. Leah, by the grace of God, was blessed to have a direct part in the coming of Christ. Despite all of the messiness of these circumstances, the Lord blessed her in that way. And so, beloved, let's be encouraged that the messes that we make in life do not hinder the eternal and saving purposes of God. Obviously, let's take warning from the sin and the confusion that we see here in the text, let's be warned to repent and to believe the gospel. But let's also rejoice and be glad in our Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the descendant of Jacob and Leah. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that sin makes things messy. And Lord, we we want to turn from sin. We want to walk with you. We pray that you give us grace, uh, that we would turn from sin. We pray that you would also uh, fill our hearts with joy at the fact that, that the messes we make do not hinder your good purposes for your people. And Lord, we, uh, we are thankful for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would run to you, that we would honor you, that we would serve you with all that we are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.